different issues that are important to churches, and they're not always the feel-good issue that you would just love to pick up and, and read it, make you feel warm and fuzzy, but they're supposed to equip churches and parents and church leaders. This one's on suicide and suicide prevention, and because we notice that there's a rise in the challenges related to that, we put this one together, and so there's a bunch on the uh, information table. If you'd like to be uh, picking one of those up, you can grab it uh, after uh, our time together. So I did move to Lipscomb uh, five years ago from Texas. I was preaching at the Preston Road Church in Dallas. People ask me, why did a Texan leave Texas and go to Nashville? And the answer, if you like C.S. Lewis, anybody like C.S. Lewis over here? Okay. Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan's on the move. And good things are happening, and I wanted to be a part of it. It's exciting to be at a place. Over 800 students go on mission trips every year. Uh, we had 51 athletes that gave their life to Christ last year. And uh, every athlete that goes to Lipscomb, a D1 school, um, will go on a mission trip while they're there. And what we discover is a lot of these athletes go on mission trips uh, without knowing the one that they're on mission for. And they give their life to Christ while they're on the mission. And so there's exciting things happening, and getting to be a part of that meant a lot to me. And so we moved there five years ago, and it's been a, a delight. I have an 18-year-old daughter and, 11, uh, a, uh, and a son who's in 11th grade, and uh, we're just all in the middle of uh, figuring out life and schools and all that. And so this material uh, means a lot to me. So let me pray over it and we'll walk right into it. I think there'll be a PowerPoint or there may be that goes along with it uh, in our time together as well. So let's pray. Lord, please bless our time. Help it to be fruitful. Help us to think about um, how we can better engage and reach younger people. And Lord, we know every person's different. We're not uh, just one big block. We're, we're individuals made in your image. And we pray that you'll bless us with wisdom and with understanding during our time together today. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus, our ever-living Savior, Teacher, Lord, and Friend. Amen. So uh, is there a PowerPoint? Is it going to... Nope. Okay, no PowerPoint. So let me... Uh, hopefully, I'll just work through some of this. There's a lot of headlines for you, Okay. If you look at it, it says things like um, people are walking away from their faith. That the fastest growing uh, segment of young adults today is those who check the box none on their religious affiliation. There's conversations about people being more spiritual but less committed uh, to religion or to Christ or to any of that. And so what I thought that we would begin with is saying the headlines tell us there's a lot of challenges related to reaching this next generation. And uh, there's surveys that go with that. And there's been a survey done by a guy named Flavel Yakely who demonstrates that about um, 40% of those who are active in a youth group when they go off to college won't go to church anymore. And about another 40% who will and will stay connected to the church where they grew up. And about another 20% that'll go somewhere else, but they'll stay connected. And so what we discover is that even among our best youth, those who are there to take the survey, about 40% of them are walking away 
from their faith. And so this morning, I wanted us to try to locate a biblical paradigm that would help us to think, is this really new or are we just reliving an old biblical paradigm that's happened before? Does that make sense? And so that paradigm would be uh, the paradigm of what we would call the exile. The exile. And the exile, for those of you who remember your church history, happened around uh, seven... 86, 787, somewhere in there. And what you remember was it was a period of time when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and he tore down the wall and he sacked the temple and he took the best and the brightest back to Babylon. And when he took them back to Babylon, he gave them Babylonian names He put them in Babylonian schools where they studied astronomy and philosophy and things that would challenge them to think differently. Everything that Nebuchadnezzar was doing was done to try and force them to assimilate into a culture. And because they were being forced to assimilate into a culture other than the one that they had lived in in Jerusalem, there was going to be this challenge. And what I would say, I'm going to back this up so I feel like I'm talking to everybody. Is that, is that all right? Um, what I would say about uh, our time today is that what has happened to our culture, what has happened to the world, is that we've woken up and realized that we live in a post-Christian world. Even in Montgomery, Alabama today, it's post-Christian. Uh, I bet... If the rain wasn't too bad, if I go by the soccer fields today, there are games being played. I bet if we go over to the jogging trails, they're just filled with people. These were the kind of things that didn't happen a generation or two ago. That there were sacred spaces built into the culture that made sure that there was a place carved out for religious faith and expression. And all those things have been pushed away. They don't exist anymore. And so young people today, they're growing up not realizing the world that we were a part of just 20 years ago. And so we have to realize that things are different. But the question that I have is, if things are different, does that mean that God's not still in control? When Nebuchadnezzar came and sacked Jerusalem and took the best and brightest out and plopped them down in a foreign soil where they were challenged not to assimilate, not to worship Jewish, I mean, Babylonian gods, not to take Babylonian names, not to eat Babylonian foods. Was God in that? Absolutely. And what we have to do today is to say, God has his people right where he wants them in order to make a difference. In Jeremiah 29, we like to quote Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. I know the plans I have for you. I quote that at weddings all the time. Couples want that one. But if you read that whole chapter, God says to them, he says, Seek the prosperity of the city into which I have placed you in exile. Pray for it. Because if it prospers, you prosper too. So get married, build businesses, 
Do great things. Don't be afraid to engage the culture because I've put you into this situation in order that you can redeem it for the kingdom of God. And so one of the things that we've been trying to do at Lipscomb is trying to understand better the emerging adults that are coming to us. And at Lipscomb, we have about uh, 800 new students that come every year. Uh, Our undergraduate enrollment is 2,900 plus change. And 4,500 students total was our number this year. And so about 800 of them uh, come as freshmen every year. And we try to figure out, okay, what is it that uh, we can learn about these students? And one of the things that we can do to get great data on our students is that we can bribe them. Do your parents ever bribe you guys? Yeah, okay. You know how we bribe them is that at Lipscomb, you have to get 30 chapel credits a semester. And uh, so you can go to chapel on Tuesday, big chapel, chapel on Thursday, breakout chapel, chapel on Wednesday night, chapel on Thursday morning, chapel on Thursday night. There are all these, and you get to pick and choose which 30 credits that you want. But somebody had this great idea. Well, let's give them a survey, about 100 questions, and we'll bribe them with two chapel credits to, to fill this survey out. And so we get an amazing response to that. We had 86% of all of our students last year take the survey. Aren't they great? They're like, hey, I know a free thing when I see one, and I'll take it. And so they all filled out this survey. Well, what that does is it allows us to tell churches like this one, here's what we're learning about the students that are coming to us. Here are the things that we can deduce from their responses that can help us to better understand uh, young adults and better understand how to minister to them, how to learn from them, and how to understand better how do they see the world. Does that make sense? And so your handout, I didn't bring one up here because I thought I was going to have PowerPoint, but since I don't, I am uh, scrambling. So can somebody hand me a a handout? Thank you. So (coughs) will they give you another one? Okay. You sure? sure? Okay. Thank you. So if you open it up and look inside, you'll see that uh, there are eight things that we're learning about, about emerging adults. And I want to walk you through these uh, quickly and just kind of tell you, here are, here are the things that uh, we're discovering. The first thing that we're discovering is that, and uh, who, who is very responsible over here? And kind of, are you a big voice too? But, I mean, you can talk loud, can't you? Okay, at 1025, I want you to just yell whatever I'm saying at 1025, five minutes. Okay, can you do that? Okay, perfect. Let me hear it now, just to, so I okay. can. No, say five minutes. Okay, good. So, I want you to do that at 1025. Is that all right? Okay, perfect. That's a wonderful help, okay? So, the length of young adulthood, emerging adults, the first thing I want you to notice is that the length of emerging adulthood is lengthening. What that is, is the length of adolescence. And the adolescence is, is the years that you don't quite think of yourself as an adult. The years where you don't quite think of yourself as adult. You don't step into adulthood. You don't take on all the responsibility of adulthood. You live in that adolescent uh, time frame for as long as you possibly can. Now, 
The average age of the end of adolescence today, the research says, is 27 years old. Okay? That until the age of 27, there's this feeling that I'm still an adolescent. You see a lot of this because the economy, although it's been great for people at the top, hasn't been so great for students as they're coming out of school and getting their first job. And so a lot of them are moving home. A lot of people are moving home and mom's still cooking and mom's still washing and they're still playing Xbox and the things that, uh, you know, Paul said, when I was a child, I thought like a child, but when I became an adult, I put these things away. 27 years old and still thinking about themselves in an adolescent. Now, this is more true for males, by the way, than it is for females. Females have a biological clock that tells them, I'm an adult. Guys don't have that. And so there's a little bit of a different feeling there. But one of the things that becomes very important in the research that we've looked at uh, really brings to bear is that very few males have a father that has challenged them to grow up or are part of a church family that has challenged them to grow up. Every year I take a group to Israel on a trip and we go over and we'll spend 17 days on this trip coming up in May. And um, one of the things that they notice is that when somebody graduates from high school in Israel... If they're male, they spend the next three years in the military. If they're female, they spend the next two. But when you turn 18, 19 years old, you wear green, you carry uh, a a big machine gun, and you work for the government. But it's part of the process of growing up. Part of the process of growing up for Jesus, you might remember when he was 12. Do you remember him going to the temple? What was he doing going to the temple at age 12? What that tells us is that he had just had bar mitzvah. And bar mitzvah was a ceremony that the Jewish culture had to say, you're now a young adult. We're going to treat you differently. You now read scripture. You now sit with the men. You now go to synagogue with the men. You are part of this community of faith and we're going to challenge you to grow up and to live in it. And bat mitzvah was the same thing for a woman. And one of the challenges that we have as churches today is to think through how do we help people understand that it's time to grow up? How does the community of faith push people into responsibility and into adulthood? And I, my bias too, and the research is beginning to show this, the community of faith that can help people to think about, it's time for me to grow up. I'm a man. I'm part of the community of faith. This has real big uh, implications for issues related to same-sex attraction as well. Because if you're telling children at 12 and 13, you're a young man, you're part of the community of faith, you're part of the family, you're part of who we are, uh, that is a very powerful message that you are conveying to people at a very important time in their life. And so the data indicates that although young people are extending adolescence into their mid to late 20s, what they long for is somebody to tell them it's time to grow up. It's time to walk into the, the adulthood that God has planned for you. So that's number one. I don't think I'll take as long with most of these till I get to the last two. 
But the, the length of young adulthood is lengthening. That was one. Number two, the desire to change the world through a new cause is great. The idea of changing the world is great. How many of y'all are wearing a bracelet that has anything to do with a cause? Is anybody wearing one? They're not as cool as they used to be, but they're still in, right? So you've got the bracelets, you've got the concerns, you've got the Facebook pages, you've got all the things that you're doing to try and say, I care about this cause, I care about that cause. And at Lipscomb, we have all of these causes, and we have this program called SALT, which means service and learning together. And they'll actually take a course where they integrate service with uh, the coursework that they're taking. But what we notice in that office is that there's service and cause overload for young adults. There's so many things that they're concerned about, so many things that are happening in the world that quite frankly, you can get overwhelmed with all of the possibilities to change the world. You know, when I was growing up, there were three news stations. And you had to stay up till 10 o'clock to get the news, if you really cared, you know. And we would just all maybe get the news, maybe not, go to bed, hear about the next day. But we never knew all the stuff that they know in an instant about, you know, what's happening in Uganda, what's happening in Kenya, what's happening in China, what's happening in the Bering Strait, what's happening in Russia, what's happening in Syria, what's happening with the, I mean, the refugees and everything that's... The causes are so overwhelming and the desire to change the world through a cause is so great. They want to do something to help make the world a better place. That's what this generation will be known for. It's the generation that wants to make the world a better place. So uh, world change is their compelling narrative. Number three, service is their doctrine, but connecting it to Jesus is a challenge. So I may do a lot of causes, I may help a lot of people, and I may do a lot of things, but how that relates to the kingdom of God, I'm not quite sure. And uh, I'm just as apt to help through the Peace Corps or to be a part of a service project that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God than if I am. And so understanding kingdom and how the kingdom of God uh, functions in all of this becomes very important. The other thing that I don't have time to talk about, but we do have an entire magazine dedicated to it. If you go to the website that I have at Lipscomb, uh, you can catch uh, all the magazines that we've ever done. And we did one of them on evangelism and social justice. And it was a whole issue that wrestled with how do we make sure that we're not just serving, but we're also naming the name of Christ. And how do we make sure that what we call a mission trip is actually a kingdom mission trip? That we're trying to win lost people uh, to the kingdom of God. Because sometimes service becomes a crutch and a substitute for proclaiming the kingdom through what we do. So that's three. Um, Number four, loyalty to a friend takes precedence over personal truth. Loyalty to a friend takes precedence over personal truth. What that means is, when I was growing up, um, you would sacrifice a friendship for a belief. I believe this way, you believe that way. Okay. Young people will scratch their head and say, why would you give up a... A friendship over a belief. 
And they'd think, why isn't the friendship more important than the belief? Why can't you sacrifice what you believe? Or say, I'm right, but you may not be wrong. And so we can live with this standard of truth that allows there to be no real ultimate truth, just you've got your truth, I've got my truth, and let's stay friends. And so we might scratch our head at that, but what we discover is that the concern for friendship is overwhelming in this group and that no one get hurt. And the best way I know to tell you about that, uh, if you're filling in the blanks, older adults view emerging adults as uh, too compromising and emerging adults view older adults as too rigid. But, um, but the way I can best describe this to you is to tell you that a few years ago, there was a group called Soul Force that sent us a letter announcing that they were com- going to come and make a visit to our campus. And Soul Force is a rainbow-colored bus that is filled. It had 18 students who were LGBT students who decided to take a year off and to get on this rainbow bus and to make a trek across the United States protesting on the campuses of Christian colleges that still had hiring practices, student life practices, uh, space practices that they wanted to protest. And so they sent us a letter telling us that they were coming. And uh, we did uh, some looking around to see how other schools were handling that. The school in Georgia that they went to before they came to Lipscomb, uh, they actually just chained the gate to their campus shut and wouldn't let the bus on campus. And we thought, probably not the best way to go. Plus, we got too many entrances. How would you do that anyway, right? But no, but we thought, no, there's a better way to do this, right? I mean, because what we want to do, Ephesians 4 says, is to speak the truth in love, right? We want to build bridges wherever possible, hold distinctions only when necessary, look for common ground, see in other people the image of God, try to love. And so we announced to our students that they're coming, and when they come, we're going to show them hospitality, we're going to welcome them onto our campus, we're going to have student ambassadors that will be partnered with them for the entire time that they're here. Uh, We took those student ambassadors and we spent four weeks in chapel pulling them out and just talking to them about what does it mean to be an ambassador and how can you talk to them about this challenge when they're on our campus. And so when they came, uh, they came on a Sunday afternoon and we had 18 students with gift bags and homemade cookies and they got off the bus and we handed them the gift bag and they had a Lipscomb shirt for each one of them. We took them on a tour of the campus. We brought them back. We fixed them a really nice dinner and we invited the administration from Treveca, a Nazarene school in town, to come and join us. And so their administration, our administration, and these students, and we sat down and uh, we spent the evening just listening to them and talking to them and understanding and building bridges and holding distinctions. But what was interesting about our students is that what they were most concerned about was that nobody who is a student at Lipscomb would be hurt by this process. In other words, don't hurt anybody as you're walking through all this. Don't divide people out. Don't make people who go to school here feel ashamed because of some belief that they may have. And, and so what I will tell you with pretty much absolute certainty is that if you're mean, you lose your voice. 
If you're mean, they won't listen. You know, one of the things I used to do, there was this guy, um, late night television, suspenders, big head, small neck. Who am I talking about? I always forget his name. He's, he's not doing it anymore. Larry King. Larry King. Remember Larry King? Larry King was this late night talk host and he would have people on. Every so often he would do a Christian segment and he would bring on different ministers. And one of the ministers he would go to a lot was a guy named John MacArthur, who's my dad's favorite preacher. Buddy Bell's my favorite preacher. John MacArthur's my dad's favorite preacher. And uh, so John MacArthur would be one of the ministers. And if I was listening to what he said, I always felt like what he said was probably the best of the four people that were up there. But if I ever turned the sound down and just looked at them, he was the least appealing of any of them because he looked mean, you know? He was going to say something, but in order to say it, he had this kind of stern, mean look on his face. And I thought, you know what? He's, he's turning a lot of people off, not with his words, but with his disposition, with his attitude. And we of all the people on the earth should be the most loving. We hold truth. We hold it absolute. But we're loving. And people get frustrated at us because we're going to love them while we still hold out truth. And uh, it reminds me, there was this... uh, young minister in Scotland who was walking through the parish and the old minister was there in the center of the city. It was a Sunday afternoon. He said, I, laddie, what did you preach on today? And the young minister said, I preached on hell. And the old minister said, ah, but did you do it with a tear in your eye? And it becomes very important for us to speak truth in love because if we're mean we lose our voice and that becomes critical in understanding how to have a relationship with emerging adults so loyalty to a friend takes precedence over personal truth the fifth one on here emerging adults are broadly connected yet often feel confused There's never been a group of people on the face of the earth who are better connected than you guys, right? I mean, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you've got all these friends, you're texting. You you sometimes think that uh, you can go to a dinner party and do this under the table and that none of us know what you're doing, you know, while you're texting during dinner. uh, So connected. But one of the real challenges is that you can have all of these electronic connections, all of this technology, but yet feel really lonely inside. And the reason why, uh, psychologists say, is because there is a, a, a theory called ambiguity theory. And ambiguity theory says for a friendship to really matter, it has to have both physical and psychological presence. That's why, you know, when you go, uh, when somebody's a soldier and they go overseas and they Skype back and forth with their family, it's better than nothing, but it still leaves that void because I want to be there. I want to be a part. I want to be with you. And so, so much of what 
is happening in connections today is virtual friendships and virtual relationships. And one of the things that I do in my class at Lipscomb, I teach freshman Bible. Dr. Lowry lets me teach one uh, section every semester. And I've got 62 students in my class uh, this time. We're having a blast. It's a lot of fun. But I tell them on the first day of class, no technology in this classroom. And they go, what? And I said, I'm sorry. This is a Bible. Yeah. Go buy one if you can't afford one. Or if your religion won't allow you to purchase one, come talk to me and I'll buy one for you. See, I've got three Muslim students and two Hindu students in my class. And so um, I usually have to purchase a Bible for them for them to own one uh, because they, won't, they feel it's a dishonor to buy one themselves. But uh, all of that uh, to say that ambiguity theory, my students, if I don't do that, they will text right up until the time class starts and then they'll pay attention to me and then when class is over, they'll leave. And so I'll ask them several weeks into the semester, what's the name of the person sitting to your left? What's the name of the person sitting to your right? I don't know. And I'll say, do you realize that the reason you don't know is because you're so into this that you're not paying attention to the people that are right there with you? And so there's a lot of ambiguity about relationship and about what does it take to really have a meaningful relationship. My daughter, she'd kill me for telling you this, but when she was in seventh grade, she had a boyfriend all summer and I never knew it. And the reason I never knew it is because they never met all summer. It was a virtual relationship. And I was like, wow, that's the most fascinating thing I've ever heard of is that you had a boyfriend all summer. I didn't know. I never met him. You didn't see him all summer either, you know? But that was part of this whole virtual uh, thing uh, that's going on. So uh, broadly connected yet often confused. Now what that should tell you is that emerging adults like all the rest of us crave meaningful relationship where somebody is physically and psychologically present. And the reason that emerging adults love older adults, like grandparents, is because they'll take the time to listen. When they talk to us about parents, what they tell us, you know, you do all this research and you think they're going to tell you that I wish my parents would spend more time with us or something like that. And you know what the... Students said about their parents, I wish my parents weren't so busy all the time. I wish they weren't rushing from one thing to the next. I wish they'd slow down and just listen. And so this becomes uh, very, very important. Turn the page over. Four minutes, right? Okay, very, yeah, okay. Uh, <clears throat> the next one here is they like to convey an image and yet be real and authentic at the same time. The most important phrase we hear from young adults at Lipscomb in this survey is real or authentic. What they value is somebody who'll be real, tell them the truth, and be authentic. Now, there are pages in, uh, whether it's their Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is, they may spend a lot of time crafting it to look authentic. But we all do that, right? But they value in us somebody who will tell the truth, who will be authentic, who will be real, 
who will just be who they are. Uh, young people are not impressed with older adults who try to be cool, and they're not. You know what I mean? And most of us, were not cool, you know? Uh, I, uh, the Apostle Paul, when he went into a city, you know what he went in looking like? I really figured this out this year. When he walked into Philippi or he walked into uh, Thessaloniki or Colossae, you know what he looked like? Like a Jewish rabbi. Wearing the shawl of a Jewish rabbi. Wearing the, the prayer shawl of a rabbi. Phylacteries. And all of that. He wasn't trying to be cool. You know what he was trying to be? Authentic. This is who I am. I got a relationship with him through Christ. And if you want to know how to have a relationship through him, come talk to me. But I can't be cool. You know, I speak a lot of different places and sometimes my daughter who's 18, who's a senior in high school, goes with me. And they'll make this wonderful introduction and say all these things about me that are really nice. And about that time, my phone will start blowing up. And it's my daughter. And all she says is, you're... You are not that K-E-W-L cool. Yeah. You're not that cool with an exclamation point. And that's all I ever get from my daughter, right? And it's, it's because I'm not, you know? Uh, I can't be cool. All I can be is authentic and real and this is who I am. And uh, at some point that becomes valuable because there's trust when you are who you are. Uh, next to last one. These are the most important two. Looking for a vibrant faith in a personal mosaic. A mosaic is a painting that's made out of tiles, right? What most young adults are doing today is they're piecing together their faith through a lot of different avenues. They'll go here and listen to this. They'll go to the Passion Conference. They'll go to Catalyst. They'll watch this online. They'll go to this church in the morning. They'll go over here at night. There's a great worship over here. I really love the praise team over there. Or there's this cool thing at a coffee shop, and I really dig what's happening there. Or my friends invited me, so I'm going to go over. What they're doing is they're piecing together their own personal mosaic. And what that means is that they don't really put all their eggs in one basket. They're not at that point in their life right now. And so understanding that the church is a way station, that we've got this opportunity to help and to bless becomes really important. And last and most important is uh, emerging adults are forming faith in a singleness context. In a singleness context. A lot of the decisions that have been made by other generations married, they're making single. Where am I going to live? Should I buy a house? Career? City? A lot of the things that people did when they were married now are happening single. And what that means is that this group looks at the church differently. Well done. This church looks at the church differently. That kind of scared me too. That was really good. (laughs) Woo! Okay. Uh, They look at the church differently. You know what uh, most emerging adults say about the church? The church is a place for married people. 
The church is a place for married people. If you want to do anything, you've got to be married and you've got to have kids. Then you can be a deacon and you might can have a ministry or do something in the life of the church. This is the generation that wants to change the world now, wants to make a difference now, wants to be part of a comparing, compelling narrative now. And what they hear when they come is, no, 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 you just go sit over there, do your thing, and your time will come. And they're like, no, my time's now. And so what we see cropping up in major cities all across America are single-generation churches run by young adults for young adults serving young adults. Is that best? No. Mm -mm. But because they want to do something now, they think, hey, if I can just be a part of this, get in on the ground, be a part of what's happening, I can step into service now. I can make a difference now. And so that's what we see. And so the challenge for churches like ours is how can we be affirming of that? The Mormon church tells everybody when you graduate from high school, think about going on a mission. Think about doing something great for God and let us know how we can fund that, support you, whatever that would be. But we, we want you to change the world and we want to help you change the world. And we don't want you to wait until you're 35 and have two kids. We want you to do it now. So tell us how we can help. That's the attitude that draws people in uh, to all this. So here's a, a couple of thoughts as we close. The key takeaways. Emerging adults are people. They're not a voting block. They all don't think the same. Get to know people, right? Get to know one or two. Invite them for coffee. Sit down with them. Ask them to volunteer with you and to teach children or something where you can talk to them. But, but do something so that you can get to know them as people. Connections will occur in relationship. That you've got to get to know people. Connections occur in relationship. And you have to view the church as a way station. College students may not come to everything that happens here. But what you'd like to be is the welcoming place where discipleship is happening, where relationships are vibrant, where you can make a difference. And they'll keep coming back. They'll get plugged in. Uh, honest and authentic wins the trust. And last, let singleness be a whole number. In Nashville, I don't know what the number is here, but in Nashville, about 60% of the adult population is single. And so thinking through how do we engage, care about, minister to single adults at every age becomes really important. Matthew chapter 17, Jesus says that some people uh, were born a eunuch, some were... Uh, made that way, but some people have chosen to be single for the sake of the kingdom of God. And being single is a whole number. And there's wonderful opportunities, and what we need to do is to be people that are really uh, affirming and encouraging uh, the place that they would have in our community. So that's what we're learning about uh, young adults. That's what we're learning about emerging adults. I don't know if any of that will be helpful to you, but I hope so. Uh, if you have any more questions, I think my email address is on that. If you want to know more about Lipscomb, the back page is like an infomercial uh, for Lipscomb. But more than anything else, I hope that you know that it's a privilege for us to be entrusted with students, and we take that very seriously and steward that gift uh, the best that we can for the kingdom of God. Let me pray over you, and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. 
We thank you for young people. We thank you for hearts that are on fire for you. Lord, we pray that uh, this will be the generation that helps to wake us up, uh, to, to go and to do and to be part of a kingdom initiative that pushes us out more and more uh, into the community and into the world to make a difference. We thank you for this wonderful church and for the people that are here. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to um, think about the next generation and all that we do. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Mm-hmm.